Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome to the Football Digest weekly podcast. Um, the game's not quite all back together again, but we're, we're getting there. It's, it's not England. Joining me, uh, John Cross from the Mirror, is my colleague Andy Dunn, Chief Sports Writer of the Daily Mirror, and also Matt Dunn, Football Aficionado of the Daily Express. Good morning, guys. Nice to uh, have your company. Um, slightly later, slightly later time, but at least that allows us to compose our thoughts and uh, um, and pay our tributes because we're going to have a little look at Gareth Bale and discuss whether he was um, and indeed is the best British export of all time. Well, judging on medals, I don't think there can be any discussion on that. Yao Felix, is he the man to save Chelsea and um, lift Chelsea? Let's see. And then it's a weekend of Premier League derbies. Blimey, what a coincidence. Anyone would think this might be a... Um, might be a Premier League plan to boost boost, um, boost the uh, the interest this weekend, but let's see. Um, but guys, let let's start, shall we, with 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 Gareth Bale. Guys, you've both written uh, extensively, particularly sort of kind of you know for Tuesday's papers um, after Gareth Bale's announcement on Monday. And where does Gareth Bale rate in in sort of? Is he one of the best of his generation? Andy, where, where, where do you stand on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, simple answer is yes. He is one of the best of his generation. He is one of the best, even if not the best, exports. You know, um, you mentioned about the medals, um, and yes, they tell their own story. You know, the five Champions League medals, the um, the three Leaguers, one Copa del Rey, but that one Copa del Rey medal won with one of the goals um, you know, in Spanish club football history. Um, so yes, the medals tell their own story, but I think what, what tells the story even more significantly is, is that even though his later years at Real Madrid ended in, well, in acrimony basically, but then, you know, everything normally ends in acrimony at the Bernabeu. So, but for him to actually go out there, um, and last for as long as he did, you know, and in the end he was a Real Madrid player for nine years, you know, and that is some going for a, a, a British player to go over to Real Madrid, which is, you can argue about um, the size of clubs around the world. You can argue about which is the biggest club all day long. But what you can't, what is unarguable, is that is is it nowhere has as much pressure on players as Real Madrid. You are literally one bad game away from having eighty thousand white handkerchiefs waved at you. So for him to actually eventually survive that long, and yes, I I take it that, that the last two or three years didn't end particularly well. But for him to actually um, be part of that for so long, I just think tells its own story. I think that's a magnificent achievement in itself. Because I'll tell you what, in 2013, um, he won the Football Rights Association Football of Year Award. Um, uh, And I presented him with that award that night. And I remember sat next to him at dinner that night. And the rumours then were that, obviously, he won it for his performances at Tottenham uh, um, during the 12-13 season. And I remember then, obviously, there was a lot of speculation as to whether or not he would still be a Tottenham for the following season. Um, and I remember thinking then, he, he, he was the first time I really met him, and he was a very shy, very um, reserved character, quite humble, quite down to earth, you know, but really sort of, you know, not outgoing and confident. And I actually thought then, well, if he does go to Real Madrid, 
the place will eat him alive. You know, I thought it really will. It, 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 it will be too much for him. You know, it's been too much for people with outgoing, what you perceive as strong characters. I didn't see that in Gareth Bale then when he won that award. Turns out he was a lot stronger than than I gave him credits for. And clearly for him to actually go through everything he did at Real Madrid, I think was a, a fantastic achievement. If you read a lot of pieces this week, you know, um, you might think that, well, actually, like, you know, a bit like, a bit like going back to the old George Best line, is that, you know, five Champions League medals, Gareth, where did it all go wrong type of thing? You know, there was an element among some um, some pundits sort of analysis of his career that maybe he didn't quite make the most of it. You know, he's and, and he's retiring at the age of 33 when we're seeing players, you know, Galacticos going on until the 35, 36, 37. Okay, well, Ronaldo is effectively retired now, but, but you, you know, you're still playing for Manchester United approaches 30th birthday. And I just think that doesn't do justice to the fact that, you know, he's also had to battle, Gareth Bale has had to battle a lot of injury problems, a lot of physical problems. And to me, at the age of 33 and a half, bowing out at the top, because he could go on. You know, he, I mean, there are plenty of clubs that have taken. I think it's the right thing for him to do. So in answer to your question, um, yes, one of the best, if not the best. And certainly, strangely enough, I actually don't think he gets the credit he deserves. No. Uh, for once, Andy, you and I absolutely agree on that. Doesn't doesn't get the credit he deserves. Best British export of all time in my book. And, you know, he's a fabulous, fabulous footballer. I mean, to, to go and win that many Champions Leagues. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even mention that. Arguably, John, I'm obviously there that night. And, and that was, you know, that arguably that's one of the best... I know, again, we are in danger of like speaking in terms of the Champions League as opposed to the, there was there was a European Cup before the Champions League, but arguably the best goal in the Champions League final you'll see. Zinedine Zidane maybe in 2002 um, against Leverkusen and Hamden is probably, you know, on a par, but yeah, one of the great goals. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah, Matt, where do you stand? I mean, you know, it's just... Uh... If anything, I'm tempted. I'm still not quite sure whether I'm committed to it yet, but I'm tempted to go a stage further and say he's arguably the, the greatest British player of all time. Um, because when I was thinking of the contenders, and I, I voiced this, we we obviously uh, we were at Oxford together. It was it was before you, you you'd arrived, but I spoke to a few of the lads who were oh, there. You're getting your digging early, isn't you? Well, you're getting your digging <laughs> first early. time ever that I got to a game before you, Crossy. Um, Stick for there now before kick off, by the way. Could, he, could, could we just clarify when you said that you and John were at Oxford together? You were at Oxford United versus Arsenal together. Yeah, Oxford United, obviously. The But yeah, I'd spoke, and, and, and opinion is divided. But some of the other names that were put forward as candidates for that role, you think, well, George Best was the obvious one who famously. You know, never played in the World Cup because of his birthright. Well, Gareth Bell wasn't dealt the best hand in that regard, and he got his country to a World Cup. Um, you know, Wayne Rooney was mentioned, Stephen Gerrard. They didn't play in a major semi-final, and they they were English. He did, uh, and then you you saw Gaza didn't last very long abroad, uh, and all these other names. You think, well, and then you've got the medals on top of that. And you think, well, actually, there is a really strong argument to say there has been no better British player than Gareth Bale. The only thing is, he doesn't help himself. You know, we'd love him to adore football. I don't think he does, um, which is why he's retiring at 33, partly because he has got other things to do, um, as well as, you know, the injury things that Andy spoke about. But, you know, he's always kind of, I mean, the goal he scored against West Ham in that season Andy spoke about, 2012 13, it was just like, 
a level above. It was something that I think I last saw in a playground somewhere where he just got fouled. Uh, it was two all. He was absolutely you know, off with what was going on. He just got fouled, didn't get a ref- kick from the referee, just demanded the ball, got, got past it 25 yards out and stuck it in the top corner as if to say, well, look, if you're not going to play this game properly, I'll show you how it's done. And it was just an incredible moment of how, just how superior to everybody else he was in the Premier League that season. Uh, and, and, you know, anyone from Real Madrid watching that would have said, yeah, that's the one for us. But again, I mean, he survived Real Madrid by by being, by being going into his shell almost. Um, you know, <laughs> we were invited uh, by BT to go, go and have a chat with him when he was inevitably injured. Um, and, uh, and went out, we were taken to one of his favourite um, steak restaurants in, in Madrid. Uh, and on the QT found out, well, actually only goes there... Um, at six o'clock when he knows it's going to be empty uh, and he orders the egg and chips, you know, he goes back to his, ho- his, his villa and he goes and plays golf. Yeah. He didn't embrace Madrid culture, which is what people like Steve McManaman were advising him to do to fit in. And he never really, as a result, seemed to get any sort of rapport with the Spanish press who were telling us all the time what a waste of space he was. Um, what I would say is the people arguing fiercest for, for, um, uh, for Bale's anointment, uh, as the, the greatest British player were inevitably Welsh. Uh, and what he's done for them uh, is is just exceeds anything else in this country in terms of a single-handed, you know, lifting of a, of a nation uh, to, to greater heights than anyone in in that country could believe. And, and for that alone, yeah, I think I'm more and more I talk about it, the more I'm convincing myself that he was the greatest British player. But, he, yeah, he just didn't do himself any favours on the PR and the likability scale by being a shy lad. Who, who didn't really get what the bigger game was? No, I get. I guess the discussion is, isn't it, that basically is he is he the most successful British export of all time? I don't think you can possibly argue against against that when, when you consider the medals and the trophies won. Um, but I do think there's probably a discussion to be had in terms of level of player. But I do think you know it might sound a bit. Pithy, but basically, uh, you know, he, he, he dragged Tottenham single-handedly, I think, one season into, into the Champions League. I mean, I always remember one, 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 one crazy game when I think, you know, they were probably going toe-to-toe with Arsenal and basically Spurs couldn't afford to slip at West Ham. And basically, you know, sure enough, you, you know, when, when it's sort of kind of the game is fading away, Gareth Bale conjures up the goal of the season. I mean, you know, what more can you do, basically? And then at Real Madrid, you know, someone came up with a crazy stat the other day about his running stats. I mean, the one where he runs off the pitch, you know, and still still goes... <laughs> yeah, maybe he should just try and lap the pitch a couple of times and give the defender a chance. I mean, he was he was unplayable. And I, I, I'm like Andy, that basically, I don't really think that basically he does get the credit and the acknowledgement that that he deserves. And I can understand why the whole of Wales this week was frankly so passionate about, you know, recognising that as such. But look, guys, let, let's move on, shall we, um, to, to sort of, you know, Chelsea and, you know, they're, they're, they're they're playing tonight, obviously, um, but they are they have pulled off one of the most eye catching deals um, of the transfer window so far. And Joao Felix from Atletico Madrid, and when I say eye catching, 
do I mean in terms of player gravitas or signing? Not necessarily just because the sheer scale of it. A nine million pound loan fee until the end of the season. They're covering all his, you know, very high wage bill. Thank you very much. And it feels like, wow, how can I put it? Desperation stakes, Andy? What? How can I put it nicely? Um, not desperation stakes. I think it, it, it is just it, it is just typical of what we've seen so far under Chelsea's new ownership. You know, it just looks fair. Listen, I like Joe Felix. I I actually thought I thought if, if I was impressed with him, I, I covered a couple of Portugal's games in the um, in the World Cup as in Qatar, and I I I've always been a fan of his. I mean, he hasn't quite obviously lived up to a, an enormous price tag, enormous reputation. Man, genuinely, anyone who moves from Benfica nowadays seems to have an enormous price tag. But um, and he hasn't quite lived up to that. And then you obviously hear. I mean, it's an obvious. There's an obvious issue. Is it why hasn't it worked out at Atletico Madrid? Why are they allowing him to go to Chelsea? That's a that's an obvious issue. Um, and then when you read, you know, respected Spanish journalists who write about him and say maybe he, you know, he's 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 a luxury player to a certain extent. Maybe maybe his attitude has been um, under under scrutiny um, over the past couple of years. I don't, there, listen, let's put it this way: there are a lot of doubts about him, even though. In the flesh, watching him play um, um, out in at the World Cup, I was impressed. I've been impressed him previously. When you say the desperation, it's not. It, it, it is what we have come to expect. It's a different name on a different day for Chelsea. You know what? I, I, I did um, again going back to. So I wrote a column for Sunday's paper, Sunday Mirror paper, and I said about you know it's hard to sort of actually spot any joined up thinking behind the recruitment process. Um, and then I mentioned, obviously, they they they, they signed um, the French player Benoit Bexadale from Monaco. They signed David Fafana. Um, the agents of Mudrick was there at Stamford Bridge, although obviously, you know, he was linked with Arsenal. You've got the Enzo Fernandez situation where Roger Smith of Benfica is accusing Chelsea of like you know disrespect trying to sign him. And and I went through these players, and obviously they've already signed. Obama Young, obviously before Potts arrived, but with the players they signed in the summer. And then you're trying to join them up. And then actually, the problem with writing about Chelsea's transfers or commenting on Chelsea's transfer business is that you're going to be overtaken, you know, within hours. Within hours, you're going to be overtaken. And literally, I wrote that on Sunday. that came out on Sunday morning. And within hours, they were linked with Marcus Duran. And obviously now that they, they, they've signed Joe Felix and there's more. And who's to say in the summer, you know, they won't, They'll get involved in the Bellingham issue. They'll probably get involved in the Declan Rice situation. You know, both of those probably going to move in the summer. And it's just hard to make any sense of it. Do, when I watch Chelsea, do I think that Jal Felix is a player, the type of player they need? So when I saw Chelsea, for example, get beat up at Newcastle the game before the World Cup break, no, they've grown up for that type of player. You, you know, they, they, they actually need now someone to cover what is a big loss from in midfield with Kante. They need... You know, um, and and defensively they need help. Do they need Felix? Well, listen, you always need a world class player if you can get one, and maybe he'll prove to be that. But it's another one to me that I don't know. I I can't see, I can't see any structure or any. And and do I think that Graham Potter said to Todd Burley, "Go out and get me Joe Felix"? I suspect he hasn't. No, no, no. It's a it's a weird one, Matt. You you went to Graham Potter's pre match. Presser yesterday, hardest job in football apparently he's got um, managing Chelsea. 
Right? <laughs> I think there's a few managers who would agree, who would disagree with that one. But um, yeah, I don't know. I really liked. I mean, you, you, I think you and I. Well, no, we weren't actually. But um, but basically, I really liked Graham Potter's, you know, bullish uh, address last week. Um, you know, ahead of the ahead of the uh, game on Sunday, and you know, I mean, it's it's you know, obviously didn't do him any any favors on the pitch, but. I don't know what what sort of place is Graham Potter in at the moment, Matt, and what, what do you think he's the right man to turn things around? I don't know. It was a very different Graham Potter yesterday. I saw the uh, the pre cup um, press conference sort of second hand, but I was there yesterday, and he said he didn't want any pity, but was talking a lot about the the very human side of of the job and and the the toll it's taking. Um, at one point, he he used to. Um, he used the words, it is a struggle, um, dealing, balancing everything. And, and when you start using words like struggle as a manager, you're just opening yourself up a little bit too much, I think. I think you've got to, well, especially when you've got, an, and at one point, uh, you know, someone uh, disarmed their question by saying, of course, I've not played football at a very high level. Uh, and Graham Potter immediately admitted, well, neither have I. And I think that's part of the issue. When you're that sort of manager going into a club like Chelsea, you need to command the respect of your players. Now, Mourinho wasn't much of a player, and he did it, though, by brazening it out and and being confident and backing himself, not by saying, oh, this is difficult. Because, we, yeah, we know issues, parts of it are difficult, but, but at the same time, it is an opportunity. It seemed a really... Uh, it didn't seem like the sort of approach that would appeal to a, a global superstar who's won World Cups, having their manager saying, oh, it's all very tricky. And it was a really odd stance to take. He told a story about um, online f- uh, abuse that he would, was getting from the fans' forums. Um, and, uh, and and he recounted a time, presumably at Brighton, when uh, his chairman said to him, um, you know, don't argue with stupid people online because they're stupid people and then immediately said not not that i'm calling the chelsea fans stupid but but actually in essence he kind of was and and it was just a little bit muddled and i think that plays quite well with a a british audience and you know we like we like you know our people in top positions to be a little bit self-deprecating and he's a lovely bloke let's not get that wrong but i just wonder how that's playing in the chelsea dressing room at, at a time yeah, when they have only won one win in eight and uh, and are travelling to Fulham, who are ahead of them. And a game which, by the way, a team they've only lost to uh, once in 42 years, by the way. So that tonight's game, I think, could, if it goes badly, could cause some ructions. And it just, yeah, it just seemed oddly humble at a time when perhaps he should be brazening it out like, like he was more last week. Yeah. It's interesting, Andy, because I think you were sort of saying as such, weren't you, that basically, you know, hang on, hang on, you know, sort of kind of, there was a bit of, I felt a bit of an attitude in, in your piece as well, that basically, you know, you, you you are the manager of Chelsea after all, but I don't know, you, you know, should he have a bit more about him? I don't know. Or do we like, do we see what we what we get and do we like what we see? Um, And it's not, I, I like what I see. Um, I, I, And I just think that, I think what he's referring to when he says the hardest job in football, clearly, again, like you know, when, when you're when you're when you're in that situation at a club like Chelsea and you're not winning games, then obviously every word that you say is analyzed, scrutinized to an extent that 
let's put it this way, it wasn't when he was manager of Brighton. You know, I mean, it, it, just that's just a fact. I mean, it, it was simple as that. When Brighton was sort of chugging along and playing some nice football, getting the odd nice win here and there, you're not going to analyse what Graham Potter's saying particularly closely. That is just a fact of, 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 what, of what goes with that stature of that job. And I think what he was trying to say when he says the toughest job in football, and this is where I agree with him, and this is why I, I did actually write this last Sunday, and that was my point, is it's the hardest job in football because it will take the ownership and the direction the ownership goes in, whoever tell, it's going to take a lot of getting used to. It's going to take a lot of getting used to the structure above him. You know, he's at Brighton. You know, he was. I'm not saying he was a sort of figure that sort of did everything, because because obviously, as we know, Brighton have got a good system behind the scenes. However, you know, you are more important. You are more central. You know, you just get the feeling that he literally just must wake up now every day and and wonder who they're going to, who they're linked with, who they're going to sign. Etc. Etc. So I do think his point is, is that the difficulty of the job comes in actually getting used to a new regime after obviously a regime that was you know was in place for a long time, and that and that and that's where the issue comes. I don't think it's a particular excuse, by the way, either. I mean, I think what's more of an excuse is is a huge injury list, you know, and certain players in that squad who actually just aren't playing well. Um, you know, and younger players who maybe think they're a little bit better than they are. So he's got a load of issues to deal with there. Um, I just think, my, 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 I know what Matt says about the game tonight. Um, I think, obviously, he will be, you know, under... It, it's hard not to get away from it. It's also, it must be quite wearing. I was at the game on Sunday when they were when they were hammered by Manchester City. You know, to see him come in there again, and it's, you know, it's got to be the same question. You know, the, the fans were singing for Thomas Tuchel. Um, it wasn't much of a player either, Matt. By the way, I don't think Thomas Tuchel, if I remember rightly. But um, well, awesome, thank you, any of them. So no, yeah, exactly. And then, um, and when when and when they're chanting for Thomas Tuchel and they're singing about Roman Abramovich, you know, it's hard. You, you have to ask him. And they've just been beaten four 0 You know, and there's four 0 going on six 0 going on seven 0 So it's going to be tough. I just think that if if there's ever a case for um, a manager of one of the Big six clubs, one of the you know elite European clubs, to be given a little bit more time. It's in this instance because I just think that it will take. And listen, Tom Bowley, as far as I know, has only just stepped down. Even this, I don't think, I don't know if it's confirmed or not, as the interim sporting director. I mean, what's that all about? You know, so I just think that you know, I, I do think he needs more time. But you know, whether he'll get or not, I'm not entirely sure. What he needs to do is win games like tonight. He needs to get results. Listen. Again, against the big teams, you know they're going to struggle with that injury list that they've got. But games like tonight, it's the games like tonight. The game that worried me most for him was when I went up to Newcastle, and they were they were very much second best against Newcastle. Now I'm not saying Newcastle haven't come on leaps and bounds because they have, but it's still a game that Chelsea should be going there and actually at least going toe to toe with them. And they didn't. Oh, can I just quickly come back because I'm well you have aware. To do it, quick. it will be very quick because I'm well aware that I've just done Graham Bottering cold. But I, I would like to add that I offered him the olive branch, the fact that United fans are finally happy um, nine years after Fergie left. Arsenal fans are finally happy and it's, what, five years after Wenger left. These things do take time. He didn't want to snatch that as an excuse. He did point out that two months ago he was one of the best managers in the Premier League, according to everybody. And I think he stays the best manager. And like you say, when you've got a board that, you know, two years after si- spend- signing a £100 million uh, 
misfit striker with a question mark over his mentality go out and bring another one into the club. You you do despair on on where what direction is being taken. And then it, it, to come back to the way you started the question, Crossy, you know, I can see why he sees it as the hardest job in football at the moment. And uh, you know, he's a talented manager, and and perhaps if Chelsea ball gets nothing else right, they can perhaps give him a bit of time. Yeah, no, I agree. Listen, I just wanted to touch briefly while I'm rushing you on. He's basically, I do think that, I tell you what, I'm, you know I'm passionate about the domestic cups this week. Uh, the Carabao Cup always takes a bit of stick. But I tell you what, if ever we needed proof of its value and its importance, then I offer you as evidence, um, our friends in the northeast, I'm looking skywards to signify north, um, Newcastle. I just thought, what a, you know, brilliant celebrations. I don't know whether everyone's seen that kind of Eddie Howe dress in the dressing room afterwards to the players. You know, football is about moments, and I love that when he talked about you know this win, Dan Burns' goal, super. And now they've got a semi final um, against Southampton and the opportunity to take another step towards Wembley. Uh, the other semi-final, well, that that will depend on whether Man United give Dean Henderson permission to play, won't it? I mean, it's a remarkable story that one. But I just thought that, that I, I I didn't want to go through the show without without mentioning that. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I mean, uh, I thought that Southampton Man City, which I watched on the telly last night, was absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know. God, what a fantastic advert for the Carabao Cup. And if you don't like, if you've gone off football and, you know, don't don't think that's important. You've lost, you've lost the love of life and football, certainly. Anyway. Anyway, that's me on my high horse because I want to move on to the Premier League derbies. And... Um, uh, what a crucial weekend, isn't it, guys? I mean, Andy, I, I, I haven't looked at the match list um, in, in detail for, for the Saturday because I rarely work Saturdays. But um, but I presume you're at the uh, Manchester Derby, aren't you? And the importance, where do we stand? Can United do Arsenal a favour? Are City in a little bit of trouble? I mean, just in terms of consistency, um, is that a valid argument? They've clearly rested Haaland for the game, but consistency? Absolutely valid arguments. Absolutely, and 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 a couple of things on that. First of all, they say, can United do Arsenal a favour? Well, United be doing themselves a favour. You know, let, let, let's face it; they'd be closing right up on Manchester City if they win on Saturday, and and you would now on the balance of form. You know, listen. If, if, if I was compiling an odds list on on that game, then I would probably have United down as slight favourites, considering their current form and considering considering City's form. And you're absolutely correct. I genuinely don't believe. As good as they've been in patches, overall, I genuinely believe the City have not been close to their best this season. I mean, Haaland, everything around Haaland and his goal-scoring record has, has in a way, maybe sort of taken away from the fact that they have been a little bit inconsistent. You know, they have lost games. They were... I mean, I know you said it was a great advert for the Carabao Cup last night, and it was, it was good. It was, you know, it, it looked good fun. But, I mean, City were poor, weren't they? I mean, City were really poor. I mean, really. I mean, I, that's a level that I haven't seen City at for some time. And it's okay saying you can just change, change, and whatever. The inconsistency is what I saw on Sunday against against Chelsea, as bad as Chelsea were, City was superb on Sunday. I mean, really, really good. Um, 
But yeah, but but last night, well, I mean, there were a couple of reasons last night where, why they weren't. I don't think particularly good, and sadly, I think one of them was was the actual team selection. Um, you know, and I think certain players, you know, the the, the car walker at centre half just didn't work at all, and sadly, um, the Calvin Phillips um, full debut, you know, was just was a bit of a disaster to be perfectly honest with you. And I do think that that was a crucial area in which they got they, they got steamrolled. But you're right. I, I genuinely think they're not as consistent. I do think the Haaland situation has detracted from the fact that maybe there have been some um, some players who haven't quite performed at the best. Dare I say, De Bruyne hasn't been at his absolutely sensational um, best. Phil Foden certainly, you know, hasn't. And you know, I detect as well just a little bit when you listen to Pep's interviews. Um, you can tell he's a little bit. He hasn't been afraid this season to actually. Give one or two players a, a little bit of a sort of a little bit of a ping in, in his press conference. Clearly, the obvious one was Phillips when he suggested that he wasn't in the best of shape. But you know, he, he sort of intimated that Foden's body language isn't good. Um, he, he, he intimated at the start of the season wasn't that happy with Mares. I just think that this it's very very difficult for Manchester City to maintain the level of excellence that they've showed over. Over five years, you know, four Premier League titles in five years, brilliance, you know, 100 goals here, 100 points there. It is quite hard for them to actually just, you know, keep maintaining that that, that level of excellence. We looked at last night with surprise, but, you know, they are allowed a bad performance. Unfortunately, I just think they've got one or two times now. I mean, like, you know, they went great against Everton in, in the draw. Just makes me think that United, on the roll that they're on and on the resurgence they're on the Eric Ten Hag at home, you know, will it will be a really, really major test for Manchester City, as as it should be, by the way, as it should be. But I generally think, in answer to your question, yes, I don't think City have been as consistently good as we would have expected to be this season, even though they are still obviously second in the league. And I'll probably still have a, have a guess on every bookmaker's list, favourites to win the Premier League. Yeah. What, 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 what do you think, Matt? Because I do, it has become a sort of a, you know, I'm such a, such an admirer of City and such an admirer of Pep Guardiola. I mean, I think yeah, it was fabulous, I think, you know, at, at Chelsea last Thursday to sit in the press box, which is so close to the benches. And then also you can see so many tactical things, you know, unfurling in front of your eyes. And the way that he sets teams up and changes teams and views teams, is I mean, I just think he's hes a god in my eyes, you know. And... You know, he's one of the greatest instigators and sort of innovators of football in in, in recent years. And I, I don't know. I do, I do feel I'm with Andy. You know, I just can't put my finger on it. But maybe we're back to this word inconsistency. Maybe he hasn't got the balance right. Maybe he hasn't, you know, maybe he hasn't, you know. There's been teams down the years when they've signed a striker and they put so much emphasis on that striker. And Haaland will clearly break all records, but it has become about more about one player rather than the team. Is that is that the issue? I'm going to flip that slightly. I think it's become more about ten players. Haaland's exceptional in itself, but what's what's left around him? As, as Andy said, it's five years. You know, for unparalleled success. Longevity is so hard to achieve in football. Jurgen Klopp's finding that this season. The one person. Only one person really who's ever mastered it over any significant period of time was Fergie. And his mantra was, you don't sell your best players to your rivals. 
Now, it was really interesting to see players like Sterling leave, Jesus. Not that they were great players for City, but that they bolstered teams that could compete with them or try to compete with them. And I just wonder what sort of message that sends to the players who are already, who stay at the club, to say, well, kind of, it used to be great being here because you just knew that we were better than everyone else. Whereas now, well, you know, what are we doing? Why are we helping our, our rivals? And, and that that cold-blooded winning mentality in that you, you win everything, even to the extent that City used to sign players, you feel deliberately to keep them out of the hands of other teams. Yeah, that that winning mentality at all costs, they're, they're like, we're going to give no quarter. We're not going to give any shadow of a chance. That seems to have dropped out of the philosophy of the club. And too many players, I think, have gone there for a, for a decent paycheck and to play a bit of football and all the rest of it. And suddenly they're being relied on. And I don't know if they have that Pep Guardiola winning mentality because he's not lost his winning mentality. You know, I don't know if they're playing with that sort of relentlessness that they've had in recent seasons. And, you know, he's got to get that back into the team where they can roll off 12, 13, 14, 20 wins in a row. Uh, and and there just doesn't seem to be the players on the pitch to do that. Mm, no, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing, really. It plays into the title. Right, in, 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 in spectacular fashion. We must, Andy, have a word on Eric Ten Hag because, you know, uh, start of the season, first couple of games, oh my God, Man United crisis. Have they appointed the right bloke? Shouldn't they have gone for Maurizio Pochettino? Oh, my dears, the, 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 the media media darling, as we know him. Um, the Southern yeah. media darling, pal. I don't know. Well, I was talking to a uh, legendary footballer from a from a team from the uh, from the north, who couldn't have been more effusive in his praise, having some spent some time with him um, at the World Cup. Um, uh, you know, in Maurizio Pochettino, and saying what an incredible guy he was, and incredible even even his assistant was amazing as well. So honestly, mate, you spend a bit of time with him, you'll be a convert, believe you me. No, but going back to the serious point in time, with you know, Eric Ten Hag is doing a hell of a job, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, and again, you mentioned those 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 two games at the start of the season: Brighton at home, um, a two 0 defeat, and Brentford away, um, a four 0 defeat. And I was at both of those games, and and. You know what? In a way, they were almost—I wouldn't say ideal for Ten Hag, but they basically pretty much exposed the 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 level of the job, the challenge that he had ahead of him, and they also exposed certain players, you know, who who have since found it tough under Ten Hag. In a way, he sort of used those two games to sort of to to establish himself to say to turn around. For example, and I, I will use the example. I'm not picking on on him like unduly. But you know the Harry Maguire situation. What was what was clear to Brentford, um, for example, was that was that actually he couldn't go forward. Ten Hag with Maguire as part of his first choice central defensive partnership, and that hasn't been the case since. You know he it was it was then always going to be. He knew he had to work with on the basis that Martinez and Varane were going to be his 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 first choice central defensive partnership, which we all know is what successful teams are based on, and you know and, and the Maguire would be essentially a fringe player. And that came from those two games. You know, that came from those two opening games. It, it, it outlined the size of the task. It also, you know, he's gonna. It, it worked in the sense that also he was never going to get the blame for those two performances. You know, and people would understand. Fans would understand. Well, listen, if the gaffer didn't know what he's let himself in for and what 
the size of the task is, he does now. And he's responded to it, you know, I mean, extreme well. He's doing a, he's doing a really good job. You know, he comes across well. He talks well. I was at one of the, might have been their last, might have been, I'm not sure they've been beaten since, but I was at a game, um, it might have been their last defeat, I don't know. But anyway, Aston Villa, Aston Villa beat them at, um, at Villa Park and I was at that game again prior to the World Cup. And he doesn't sugarcoat things, you know. He, I mean, even though that was a blip in an otherwise good run of form, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He turns around and says, that's unacceptable. This is unacceptable. This is, you know, we've got to do better here. We've got to do better than that there. I like, he, the, the, you know, his, his, his plain talking, I think it's good and goes across well with the players. And clearly, clearly he's got players now who are enjoying the way he operates. I mean, on Marcus Rashford being the obvious one. So he's doing a fine job. He, he's doing such a good job that no one is raising an eyebrow that he's signing Wout Weghurst. Yeah, I know, I know, I, mean, I know. Like, you, you, and, and people literally, can you imagine if United had signed him under a previous regime? With all respect, by the way, to Weghorst, because with all respect to him, because obviously I, I was actually in the stadium that night when he scored those two goals for the Netherlands against Argentina, including one of the best worked free kicks 11 minutes into added time. So, so, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to like denigrate his unique talent. But can you imagine if United had said we're going to sign Vegas? Like you know, it would have been pilloried by his own fans. But now, of course, he's got, he's now got so much goodwill, so much credit, Ten Hag, for what he's done so far. That people say, you know, this might be a masterstroke. What a guy who couldn't cut it at Burnley, a masterstroke. But no one's, you know, everyone. everyone in other words, they trust him. You know, that's been. They trust him because it is quite obviously also Veghorst when it's completed. I think it's going to get completed today, isn't it? I think they've agreed at, at some fee with Bessie Tassi and obviously had them on loan from Burnley. But anyway, anyway when it's complete, but when it's completed, like you know, it's quite obvious that this is, and in this day and age, you know, uh, this is clearly a transfer completely driven by him, completely driven by Ten Hag, you know, and and the fans will trust that. They'll think, you know what? Um, here's what he's signed him for. I mean, nobody's probably signed him for. He's, he's signed the, 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 you know, let's put it this way. Let's say he signs in time and they're 2 1 down against Manchester City with 20 minutes to go. That's what he signed for. He signed to come on there and, you know, a specialist from getting on the end of set pieces. It's just a practical move, you know. So it's, I, I say, he, he's now, he's got, let's put it this way. I know a lot of United fans, an awful lot, and there's now I don't think I can find one of them that doesn't trust um, Eric Ten Hag, and that's been his big success in his first six months. Yeah, it's, ama- it's amazing transformation. Speaking of amazing transformations, Matt, and true Alan Partridge style here, I'm doing a segue on, on, onto 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 Arsenal. I mean, you know, I'm sure we were both at the game at the end of last season when Tottenham, you know, battered Arsenal, humiliated. Knocked him out of the park and knocked him out of the Champions League. Fast forward, uh, what is it, uh, eight months? I mean, it, the transformation for Arsenal on and off the pitch has just been nothing short of remarkable under Mikel Arteta. I know sometimes you'd rather be grudging in your praise for Arsenal, shall we say? Always, and whenever possible. Whenever possible, I'm begrudging with my praise. Um, I, I was going to, if you hadn't picked that segue, I was going to say uh, Ten Hag. Man United are currently oh, I full. I think with Man United, well, Arsenal, good. 
Man United, Man United are currently fourth, which would, if they finish there, only five worst Premier League seasons as a measure of where United should be. And Ten Hag's done what Arteta did when he first arrived. He's made some hard decisions, steadied the ship. Now, Ten Hag needs to now do what Arteta's doing now, which is making them pretty much out of left field title challengers. Uh, and that is a remarkable achievement, especially when you look at some of the means he's using to do it, thanks to that uh, Amazon uh, documentary. I mean, how a manager gets away with playing, you know, you never walk alone over the tannoy while the players change and producing light bulbs and doing win, lose and draw with all his doodles and everything on his Who knows why that works and how that's landing? But clearly he's got some magic there. Because Arsenal are playing absolutely superbly at the moment. And, you know, although, I mean, I was looking at City have only lost twice in the Premier League. For all that we say, they've lost their consistency. The only reason we've got a stick to beat City with is because Arsenal are consistently, you know, are being even more consistent than City. And, I mean, we were both Oxford, as we mentioned, not the university, um, but but the uh, three quarters of a ground. Um, you know, they were slow starters, that night and didn't play particularly well, but when they got it together, they were irresistible and, and, and they have been in recent games. And even the draw with Newcastle, they would have lost that game, I think, in previous seasons. And he seems that he's got the energy around the club that Pochettino had when Spurs were on the up and up. Uh, and the difference is they're leading the table, um, which, which Pochettino never quite managed to at Landon there. What I would say is Arsenal have a notorious history of being top of the league at this stage of the season and mucking it up. So there's going to be a lot of measure on on how they steer this into port if they are going to be able to. And my big concern is just how badly Arteta seems to be losing it on the touchline every week because that's not healthy for a person anyway. But I don't think it's sending the right vibes out to his team. He's, his antics on the pitch, especially in that Newcastle game, he's the not exactly commandeering a, a sense of calm amongst his players. And they're young players who, who perhaps need that. And, uh, and given it was Newcastle that they played against in that game, you're sort of reminded of a Kevin Keegan figure that you think, well, if anyone's going to throw away a massive lead, then Arteta bouncing around and, and going loopy for 90 minutes. Yeah, he, sort of, he doesn't seem like a man who's going to just knock off the wins and uh, and get them over the line. So, so that's the concern. I think he needs to learn a little bit of control um, just to transmit that through to his players. That said, some of the players he has got have got some of those leadership skills now. Even the younger ones like Odegaard seem to keep their heads. Uh, Granite Jack is reigning in. Um, so he's got a bit more of that on the pitch now than he's had in previous seasons. So... So, yeah, fantastic job he's done so far, but the proof is going to be what happens between now and May. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I do totally agree, really. Let's let's see how they... Because they, they, at the start of the season, I'm sure they've been very happy with top four. Guys, let's... Before we before we wrap up, let's let's have a prediction then. Let's go around the room. Andy, how do you see both... How do you see both derbies turning out? What's the scoreline prediction, please? I see, I see Spurs Arsenal um, as as a draw. I see that as both sides scoring. I mean, I might, I even fancy a bit of a, a two-two for Spurs Arsenal, and I do think Manchester United will will um, will win the Manchester derby. I really do. I think I think um, in a sense, just 
over this week, for example, you know, only this week because obviously City played well last Sunday. But um, I do think there's a bit of momentum there, and I think I think United will will win the derby. I think United will score. I think City are vulnerable, and I think United will win the derby three one and two two for Spurs Arsenal. Wow, Matt. Well, controversially, I think Arsenal's going to win on uh, in the North London derby. Um, I think Spurs will start slowly and come back like they do every week. Um, I was worried in after the Villa defeat for Spurs. I was in the mix zone. And the same energy that has got Spurs through so far as they have done in the last sort of five, six years, just didn't seem to be there. The players didn't seem to be seething enough. It just all just seemed to... Ordinary. They had an off day, but you know, some senior players walk past, and you just didn't. You weren't feeling the anger that should have been there after such an abject show. And I think they'll start slowly. Arsenal score, and and for once, Arsenal have a strong enough defence to, to keep Spurs back when they inevitably come strong at the end. As for the other one, I think Manchester United will be unlucky to draw. Um, I'm with Andy. I think the momentum's with them um, at home. Yeah, the, they'll really do well, but somehow I think City might nick one. But that's still, you know, if Arsenal do win, that's more points lost for them. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Fantastic weekend, Ed. Boys, it's been so nice to see you. Thanks so much for everyone joining.